that Sanders from 1915, and it's cool. It sounds like a train when it's running. <laughs> you know, it works fine. It's from 1915, like, come on. Of course it's loud. There's no, there weren't any rules in 1915. Hey, 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 Shoecast. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Stitchdown Shoecast, where we talk quality footwear, how it's made, and all the things we love about it. I'm Ben from Stitchdown.com. We've got Sir Ticho here, and today we're chatting with Grant Gustafson from Unsung House, one of the most interesting and focused shoe repair, restoration, and customization shops you'll ever find, situated in Nashville, Tennessee. Unsung's only been around for a year, maybe even a little less, but Grant and his brother Isaac are already doing some of the just seriously the coolest cobbling work out there, which if you listen to this makes total sense, and if you don't, you would probably stop listening right now, but trust me, it's cool. And they've already begun making their own boots, one pair of which is actually in attendance for the shoe cast taping today. We're amped to get into everything Unsung House is doing, how it got started, and where they want to go with it all. But first, we need to give a loving shoe cast shout out to our sponsor this week, Division Road, whose bucolic Virginia HQ compound is extremely open for business. Ticho and I were actually just there a little bit ago for our joint event with White's Boots and left just completely blown away by what Jason and crew have put together down there. If you're in the area, it's a must-hit, 100%. If you're not, figure out a reason to get there. I don't think you're going to be disappointed. Also, if you enjoy this shoe cast even a touch, I have a hunch you would simply love the Stitchdown Discord, the beating boot heart of the Stitchdown Premium community. So check it out. Your membership does so much to support the ShoeCast and all Stitchdown operations, and you'll never find a more knowledgeable, welcoming group of people similarly obsessed with boots and shoes as you anywhere in the internet. And Grant's there too. Give it a look. More info at stitchdown.com. All right, let's do this thing. It's unsung time. Grant, welcome to the ShoeCast. Thanks so much for coming on. And what may I ask, are you wearing on your feet today? Hey, thanks for having me, guys. I'm wearing our six inch boot model that i've kind of been working on for the last while it's called the u22-1 slog boot i think that's what i'm gonna call it uh what does that mean <laughs> attractions uses the lot 444 and numbers like that and i guess it's sort of based on military boot styles taking from the pershing boot from world war one and yeah, Boondocker from World War II. Lofgren does the M43. I liked that. Try to put my own spin on it. I dig it, man. Those things are cool. Like, I'm not sure that I had seen that pattern because I'm not like a military boot historian by any stretch. I would love to become one. Need to apply myself. But I was like, oh, damn. Interesting, different pattern, which is always cool because it's tough to do that. I've been messing with a pattern like this for for the last few years, it's not exactly like a Pershing boot because I think I had seen some in-between iterations and wanted to make it a little bit sleeker than the original Pershing. It's pieced together historical knowledge, I suppose. Ticho, good to have you here. Do you have boots on? I do indeed have boots on. It's been a good week of what I like to say new boot goofing, which is when you get a new pair of boots that you're, at least for me, extremely excited to take pictures of and start wearing and uh, just generally dancing around, prancing around. Yeah, I've got a pair uh, that Grant made me, man. Engineers. Okay. So the story starts in Grant's backyard with some walnuts. Takes the walnuts, makes an overdye out of the walnuts from his backyard. Wait, that's what these things are? Yes. Yes. That's what this is. I didn't know that. It's a Wicked and Craig natural latigo, which I always thought was latigo, but I think everybody says latigo. And he hand over dyed it. It was pretty cool because he was like, oh, I'm going to make you these boots. It's kind of a prototype. He's kind of, you know, working on this over dye. And I was like, yeah, that's awesome, man. You know, could we just hang out and could I just like watch you work? That's really cool that this guy's in the U.S. We're like one time zone apart. You know, so we just like we hopped on Instagram live. We made like a couple Instagram lives where I was just kind of watching him work for like a while. And it was the coolest thing that has happened to me in the last year, probably. I was just nerding out, completely geeking out. And these things, they turned out fantastic. I decided I'm going to do a double dome. I'm going to Thunderdome these things because I have to see what I could do to this leather, man. I mean, it's just, it's so freaking cool. He created this dye himself from scratch, from walnuts in his yard. That's insane. The boots look incredible. 
His work is fantastic. Everything about these things is awesome. We're probably going to talk about these boots a bunch because I'm kind of obsessed with them right now. We're definitely going to talk about the boots a bunch in the second half was the plan. And I'm not going to let you derail me here. But <laughs> I'm I just so made, excited. I just made a note walnuts uh, for <laughs> when we get to that. But yeah, man, look, both of you, congratulations, I guess, because those things look absolutely fantastic and just like hugely unique, which is not an easy thing to do. So bravo, everybody. Let's get back to the start of Unsung. Grant, can you give us the Unsung 101? What are you up to down there? What's the whole vision for this thing? What's happening in the shop every day? I'm so curious. My brother and I had been working at a local shoe repair shop where we took in just about anything for the past five years or so. And we have to take in apart so many pairs of shoes. You really start to see the through line of quality conceptually and became fascinated with it and wanting to specialize in that a little bit more, wanting to work on well-made shoes, welted footwear, and really saw an opportunity to be more of a national business rather than just a local business, which is what the previous shop we worked at very much was. And we were aiming to start in May of 2020. And in Nashville, a week or two before COVID shut everything down, a tornado came through. And the building that we're actually in now was hit by that tornado and was damaged pretty badly. Friends own the building, so very lucky to be in that space. But they were going through like a two-year insurance battle because it's in a historic district in Nashville. So we opened in March of this year, really just circumstantially. It's for the best because having that extra two or two and a half years to really get my ducks in a row was useful. It's mostly going as planned. We aim to find boot nerds near and far via your forum, the Discord, social media. We're having a great time working on everybody's projects thus far. See, everybody doing repair work, cobbling work, you know, restoration is just an angel and a god and all those things as far as I'm concerned. But I feel like very few are focused in the way that you two are on boot nerds. I mean, there's some people doing fabulous stuff with vintage floor shimes and whatever, and like you can't believe what they're doing. But a lot of it is like classic dress stuff. And they can work on the boots, and you know, they're happy to work on Aldens and Alden Indies, you know, one of the great boots that exists. I think it's like a needed twist to the repair and restoration and more landscape that you're doing. Nobody ever said this is what we're going to do before. Why? Just because there's a market? Is it something that you personally cared about for a long time before? Did you get obsessed with that when you were doing repair work? Like, where'd that come from? Because I love it. That's certainly where it starts. I mean, I was always interested in, I found myself gravitating towards older workwear styles and older military styles in things that I was wearing previous to working at the repair shop. And then the faded first few days working at the shoe repair shop, I just started there. I wanted to learn more, so I typed something into YouTube and found Brian the Bootmaker videos, and those were certainly formative right off the top. It begins with a general interest for that attention to detail. What was happening at the regular local repair shop? What kind of stuff were you working on, and how's that different from what you're doing now? It was uh, just about everything, from gluing together plastic sandals to, you know, working on some Aldens, lots of cowboy boots. Nashville doesn't have a super diverse, well-made footwear clientele, but they're out there. There are so many things that I'd never worked on previous that I've always just paid attention to via Instagram or YouTube. Lots of the Japanese companies and Indonesian makers that I've been able to work on. It's all basically the same internally. So I guess I was set up with a skill set and understanding how things are put together from that previous experience. I think of Nashville as being like a big cowboy boot town. I've been there a couple times, but not really like as an adult and like hanging out and like staring at everybody's feet like I, I usually do. So yeah, um, although the one time I came, there had also been tornadoes that had ripped through. I was like driving down to um, New Orleans. It was like before like you had cell phones and stuff. So I just was driving down the highway, got off in Nashville and there's just hail everywhere, like all over the ground and everybody's like bugging out. I'm like, I had no idea. I was just driving, listening to a podcast and <laughs> completely unaware that this is going on. But I think of it as like, oh, it's all these country music people who I'm thinking are wearing cowboy hats and cowboy boots. Is that accurate? Inaccurate? Oh, that's what they're putting out there. I mean, there is some of that. There's a lot of different segments of the music industry here, but that does exist. Not everybody's wearing cowboy boots, though. Are you? 
No, I'm not. I went to college in Illinois and I was wearing cowboy boots then in college. And then I moved to Nashville and immediately stopped wearing cowboy boots. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. See, that tracks. That tracks. You're like, well, now now I'm here. I got to be different. I got to do my own thing. I feel, I feel you on that. <laughs> it's too on the nose, yeah. <laughs> Cut against the grain, baby. In terms of, and maybe you saw this stuff, maybe you didn't, but, you know, in the U.S., outside of Alden, outside of what's going on in the Pacific Northwest, you know, Whites, Knicks, et cetera, Western boots are the other last bastion of great boot making. And I've been trying to educate myself for the past, like, six months on just, just talking to people who know a lot about them, understanding, you know, everything, the patterning, down to the construction and I'm like starting to get my head around them. It's kind of like my own niche within a niche interest area. But were you seeing like really good stuff coming through there in terms of how they're put together versus the other stuff that we might talk about on this show or, or that people might be wearing? And if you did, like, what did you see? What like what kind of caught you about the Western boots, especially something that's really well made? It wasn't like everybody had a handmade pair of boots from some Texas bootmaker. Mostly people were wearing Lucases or something. I remember one woman, she was overseeing Kitty Wells' estate, and she brought in some of her old boots, and they were like hand-tooled shafts and vamps and everything. Getting to resole that old stuff was really exciting for the history and just seeing the quality of the time period. You know, some people would come in with custom pairs from Texas makers, or they would have like Rios of Mercedes pair that was really nice. Those were always fun to work on. Dude, that Rio stuff looks great. Like, I think if I'm going to make a move on a first pair, it, it seems like a very appealing option, both in terms of style and then, like, as I understand, they're just very well put together. Super solid. Yeah. yeah. One of your Discord members, Graham Ebner, I've been following him for a while. He's so good. His work is like immaculate. Yep. Maybe that's your first pair. All right. Ropers. I'm starting with ropers. Right, right, right. Take yeah. it easy. Nothing too fancy. Start big, man. Just get some, yeah, get like some rattlesnake, get some python, go uh, exactly. Go hard, man. Yeah, I also got tipped off on Graham Ebner, and those have been the cowboy boots I've been drooling over. Yeah, his work looks awesome, man. It's kind of similar to you, where it's like, all right, you got somebody who's a younger dude getting into this, making stuff, just focusing on making the best quality stuff that you could see on the market. I don't know. It's exciting, man. It's exciting to see that. Yeah, it feels generational, really. I don't know if I'm naive in thinking that, but it seems like there is a bit of a shift. Our age group, maybe. People in their late 20s and 30s, sick of disposable culture and items. This isn't like a philosophy that I held my entire life prior to starting working on shoes, but I really did learn a lot from that. It was like a confidence builder in a way because I learned how things could be put together well. All the different iterations you kind of learn about quality generally. I feel like it kind of changed my life. It kind of made me more interested in other things. I got into tinkering with small engines a little bit, some woodworking. Learning a skill like that is is certainly a confidence builder. Often I feel like I'm on like the outside of this and like, oh man, if only I had more time not recording podcasts in the middle of the night, I would totally do this. But yeah, once you get down that path, you say, oh yeah, like somebody made this. And like, especially the good stuff, like somebody made that. And they just had to figure out how to do it. And in the end, it's just putting stuff together. It's the bane of my existence. It's really cut into <laughs> our ability to create podcasts at a rate and exact time that I want to. But they're building like four houses down right next to my house, which used to be the woods. And it's terrible. But I'm also sitting there like odd. And they're using, you know, gigantic excavators that are tanks that can climb on top of anything. But at the end of the day, a bunch of guys got to take some wood and slap this thing together. And you've seen it like from digging it out to foundation up so far. And it's like, oh, I hate this, but at least there's something I can marvel at. And like, I don't know how to build a house. I've been waiting for two years to build a playhouse for my kids with my dad who knows how to do it <laughs> so I can learn something. And I feel like once that happens, it'll be like, this was a really small house, but I know how to build a fucking house now. What else can I build? Something clicks there, right? Yeah, I suppose. You want to get into woodworking? Yeah, I mean, I, I do a little bit of it. I mean, I, I've built some things. I'm in a four-year project now of building a dining room table. Oh, okay. Are you doing like hand tools or do you have power tools? What are you doing? I mean, a little bit of both, but like, yeah, a lot of hand planing and like... Oh, yeah, okay. Like some real-ass work and it's like incredibly rewarding and one day there may or may not be a table that continues to stand. So yeah, like that's the one for me. I built like a pretty cool bar 
that like is highly imperfect and that's fine that's still there it holds the booze but yeah obviously just being surrounded by like all this footwear stuff talking to people like you god this is fucking intimidating and then to paraphrase you earlier you're like well you know you understand how like they're put together like it's all kind of the same in a way which is an absolutely baffling statement for somebody who's never built a boot from scratch, taken one apart and put it back together. But it's true. Like it's it's lurking underneath and it's the opposite of kind of mass culture in a way. Sure. Like I have IKEA furniture too. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to move off of it. One piece at a time. The perception is really interesting that I can present these projects nationally, but really I'm only bringing this up to speak to the possibility of anybody who's interested wanting to do this. I've only been doing this for almost five years, but it's just about reps. And all of my early work was not good. If you wanted to learn, you already have such a knowledge base just from your interest in the subject. You just need to set you up with the last stand in your basement. I'll start sending you some pairs that I find at thrift stores and we'll get you some materials. You start resoling those one at a time, you know, just getting a feel for it. We'll set up a shoemaking summit one year from now. It's on the books. I got it. If we want to do that, let's do that. Despite living in the woods, there's an like odd number of hotels right around here. I'm in. And anybody who's doing this, they're my person for sure. And including you. Here's one that I wrote down in my the list of questions here before we got started. And I feel like this is the perfect time to ask it. Are you ever just fucking scared of completely screwing something up? And not like, okay, I'm putting on this expensive JR leather sole or something. And if something goes wrong, I got to eat that cost. But I was watching the repair of the uh, vintage tanker boots or restoration, to be clear, on the vintage tanker boots that you did. And it was like, oh man, you know, you start pulling these things apart and there's like all this old stuff inside and like it's natural materials and and then you got to go back in and put somebody's treasured pair of boots back together. What's dealing with that like? It depends. I mean, I'm terrified every time I hold a boot to the sander. Things could go horribly wrong there and it's all about controlling the work. But as far as taking apart that pair in particular, sometimes you don't know how bad it is until you open it up. And that was one where I thought that I would take the soles off and be able to re-welt them because that had been stitched through several times, so it needed to be replaced. But when I pulled the welt off, the footbed, like all the gemming and the leather piece that was folded up was really dry rotted and basically tearing out when I was pulling the welt thread out. So sometimes you don't know what you're getting into. There are certain precautions taken. That's a little bit less scientific than, say, relasting with somebody's measurements. That's the right way to do that. I can set up a series of markings and, and measuring, basically put it back together the same way without relasting it. That's not as scary as the sander. <laughs> What's gone wrong with the sander? Luckily, I made all my mistakes early on, and I never hit an upper on the sander anymore. Haven't in years, but things can go wrong. I mean, in the videos, you can see that's... Maybe to segue to, to Ticho's initial mention of the 100-year-old machine, that sander's from 1915, and it's cool. It sounds like a train when it's running. You know, it works fine, but the sanding wheels are pretty tight up on there. And, you know, sometimes you have to get in a hard-to-reach area. Where'd you get it? Facebook Marketplace in rural Illinois. My dad still lives in rural Illinois, where Isaac and I grew up, and so he was very generous and I bought it and he went and picked it up and put it on a trailer and stored it for a few months before then driving it down to Nashville and loading it into that house with us. Yeah, it's had a long journey and it was in somebody's parents or grandparents shoe repair shop before that. The stories it could tell of all the uppers it's, <laughs> it's oh. sanded into. Yeah. So this thing's over 100 years old. Does stuff come up with it in the time that you've had it? And like, what happens when you need to fix that thing? Everything's set up on a clutch. So there's one thing that spins that will <laughs> that will rotate all of the other sets of polish brushes or the sander or the edge trimmer. And there's a handle that engages each of those things. So it's pretty simple. That one's not too complex. Every machine that we bought for this, we had kind of been slowly assembling all of our machinery over that two and a half year period. The curb needle stitcher and our champion McKay outsole stitcher those were purchased rather cheap, and they took some fine-tuning. That's a relative term. Yeah, some, some fine-tuning to get working. The sander, second hand, it's good to go. Just don't sand the upper. Dude, that's wild. I feel like the overlap between 
guys that are super into making boots, like having the the level of focus, the level of minutia and obsession with that. There's like a lot of overlap with obsession with weird old machines. So I feel like those two things go, it's like a really good combo to just be like, yeah, I love making these boots. I also need to just be really into weird old machines. Like it's the perfect combination, I feel like for just a certain type of guy, which it seems like you are. Somebody else that's in this field, you can always talk about sewing machines if there's nothing else to talk about. (laughs) Yeah, you cranked on that sander while we were on one of those Instagram lives and just everybody in the comments was just like, the audio is messed up. It's all crazy. I'm like, yeah, dude, it's from 1915. Like, come on. Of course it's loud. There's no, there weren't any rules in 1915 about how loud your machine could be. Like, sounds kind of like a tornado. Like, it's just like, it was crazy, man. That's so cool. (laughs) <laughs> Didn't go over well. I should have muted. I learned. I learned my lesson. No, I want to hear. I want to hear the old machine, man. You got to get the full experience. <laughs> you know, I feel like you gave us the whole experience. That was tight. Ben, just cut in like ten minutes of this thing running at the end of this episode for people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, okay. Here's the machine. Machine, go. <laughs> Teach you to so do that's it. so cool. You should do an impression of it. That was out of control. <laughs> <laughs> this is good. We're just imitating machines with our mouths. This is a good time. <laughs> Grant, you mentioned relasting earlier, which is something that I think is a unique skill, not something that everybody is really out there doing. And you're working with Josh from stitchdown.com on a story about that, that as relasts come in, we want to help people understand that a bit more. For this episode, even if that article isn't up yet, what's the whole process there? Somebody wants a boot and it looks a certain way and it fits a certain way and they want something different and in comes unsung. You take it apart and you put in a new last. Great. What's going on beyond that? Aside from the closing of the upper, everything else compared to the process of building a boot is pretty much the same. So I would request detailed tracings and measurements from a customer. I'd size up a last and, and, you know, depending on what they're looking for, I try to be pretty accommodating for what they're searching for in their new fit. If it's the previous boots are too big or they don't like the toe shape, if it fits weird in the waist or something, I can make certain adjustments uh, depending on what style of boot it is. Once we get the last decided on, if I have to do any buildup, I can do that and I'll make new footbeds. I use Baker leather. Generally, unless the customer wants stitch down construction boot, like if they were stitched down previously and they want to keep that, most of the time I can make that work. But in every other case, I'll do hand welt. So I'll set the footbed up, get that prepped, like Ticho had me on one of his Instagram lives to go over the process of prepping a footbed and cutting a hold fast. Once that's prepared, the boot has already been disassembled at this point, we'll say. The bottoms are taken completely off. We remove the soles, remove the welt. I'll pull the old footbed out, and it's just a floppy piece of upper leather. And then that is then stretched over the new last and attached to the footbed, nailed on in the same way you would when you're making a boot. And then after that sits for several days, I'll re-welt the boots. And from there, it's the same as like a re-soling process. You know, they'll be welted with new footbeds, put in leather filler, shanks, new soles, and build it back. It's somewhat limiting in what you can do. Usually going smaller is really your only option, but I have done one pair thus far where if the boot needs to be bigger, you can replace the vamp on a pair of engineer boots anyway. We did a pair of roll clubs where the customer had these boots relasted previously and they were too small now. So he wanted them relasted larger. I had to replace the vamp and then last it to his larger last, put it all back together. So I suppose anything's possible just depending on how deep you want to get into it. But it's pretty much, yeah, like complete disassembly (laughs) and then reassembly. Wait a minute. So somebody sent you a pair of boots that had already been relasted. He wanted you to relast it a second time bigger than the previous relast. Yeah, he made a mistake. He went too far. (laughs) And you fixed it? This guy has been such a solid customer. I don't know if he's like on the scene, but my guy Enrique in South San Francisco has been a solid customer. He trusted me to do this. We replaced the horsehide vamp on his pair of Roll Club Engineer boots and relasted them to a larger size. It was kind of crazy. I w- <laughs> <laughs> he surprised me when he wanted to go for it. You don't have to go much smaller, but you usually have to go a little bit smaller because you need to be able to pull some of that material from the upper over the footbed to tack it on there and then welt. 
So going larger as possible with vamp replacement. Man, that is that's pretty <laughs> wild. All right, let's keep plugging on this for a second. In terms of I want to relast. People want it maybe to look a little different, but definitely fit a little different. What do you have there? I mean, you have a stock of lasts or you have a bunch of lasts in different sizes that you can then build up. What are the possibilities, I guess? I want to relast. Grant, what can I do? At this point, I have a couple different styles of size runs of lasts. When we first opened, I just bought a size run of Munson lasts. Not a lot of people wanting to relast their boots on Munson. I do. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I've sanded the toe bump off of several sizes thus far and used those because it is for a narrower foot. That's a really good starting place. I did a, a relast of a pair of clinch engineer boots and to get that to kind of resemble the CN last wasn't too hard. It kind of shaped up nicely, but you know, I've got one proprietary style that we had custom made and another set of lasts that are kind of modified. And then we have Munson. So it's limited, but there are some possibilities. Any of those can be manipulated or adjusted, building up a little bit of leather on there and, and smoothing it out to account for measurements or to account for a toe shape. Part of the process that we went through doing these boots is you really made me work on the measurements and the tracings and, and all that stuff. It's like I had tracings that were here and I'm like, yeah, I got these tracings. And you were like, I need you to do this. Were you sitting when you did it? Were you standing when you did it? <laughs> we like we got like super super into the weeds on it but you know what the results were there you know when you're doing this for you're relasting stuff you're you know doing stuff remotely for people in California and in, in New Jersey wherever being able to do that is uh is is pretty critical right i mean if you're taking somebody's roll clubs and relasting them and giving them a whole new shape a whole new size a whole new fit like yeah that's super important and so that was something that jumped out at me as we worked on these was like this guy's real serious about the measurements and the fit. And that was like, that's what I knew. I was like, this guy's for real, man. Cause he keeps like coming back to me, making me like measure the balls of my feet here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, I just, I want you to be happy. You know, I, I, uh, <laughs> I wanted him to fit. If I can take the measurements, it's one thing because I know exactly how I did it. I know I asked you to stand up at this point. I accounted for details that I noticed, but when I just have a piece of paper, all the information is welcome. It's really helpful. I've had some people, I don't remember if I had you do this. I have them send me side profile shots of their bare feet from both sides, just so I can really see where the volume's distributed. I've had several people do this. So I've got a real database going. Next time you're going to get some videos of me, of my bare feet, just walking over pies or other baked goods <laughs> or, you know, just squishing stuff, you know, just so you can see how my, how the weight is distributed as I'm like stepping on a lemon meringue pie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I suppose these, the folder looks a little fetishy. <laughs> careful who, who finds it on our computer, you know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> What's the most interesting thing you learned in the last week? about repairing shoes, maybe the last month, something you didn't know before. There are so many things like that. I've talked with friends about this involved in crafts too. So many things that I've heard or read in a book somewhere or heard talked about, it doesn't fully sink in. This could be about like life generally or about repairing shoes, but it doesn't fully sink in until you actually do it and realize what you're doing that for. I feel like in the last two weeks, actually like pleating and lasting toe leather uppers around a toe or around a heel I've gotten better at something just sank in about how you need to move the excess leather to really get that pleat to lay down flatter that's funny you ask that question because there are things all the time I feel like I'm learning something new I mean I have to imagine right the jobs might be the same but the boots are different the leather's different so you left kind of a standard repair shop where you're gluing sandals back together and opened up something that's far more specific. You've seen the whole spectrum of it. We talk a lot about this and we have specific episodes. Everybody should go listen to the Jim McFarland episode if you haven't already because it's really important about the state of the cobbling industry, where it's been and where it's maybe going. And I think that's somewhat unclear. Given that you've been in all these different places and have seemingly consciously made the decision to move into something highly specialized for a specific audience customer. What's your read on the whole thing? Where's this all going? Just people being able to repair shoes. This is something I kind of struggle with because working on the well-made shoes is much more fun than gluing together sandals. 
but I don't know the proper path when encouraging the general public to maybe seek something that isn't so disposable while also considering the myriad factors of existing in our modern culture. I don't know. I'm noticing uh, like a generational awareness of the need to own fewer, better things or stop throwing away plastic before the, you know all the world is a landfill. I'm seeing more and more people, and even within the last few years, popping up, if that's via YouTube or Instagram, other people who are getting into this field and getting very good. I have hope for it, and it's optimistic in some form, but I have to believe that there's some sort of shift hopefully happening. You know, I think there's a generational shift, and, you know, I think all three of us were probably within four or five years of each other and from early 30s to early 40s. We all probably grew up, and, like, most of the stuff that you could buy, it seemed like it was pretty solid, and then it just kind of got progressively worse as we grew up. We just kind of hit a tipping point where a lot of people were like, I wish the stuff that I could buy was just nicer, you know? I wish I could just <laughs> buy nicer things and then, like, repair it. If I could keep the same phone for like 10 years, I would probably still have a like an iPhone 5S or like a 6S. That was like a great iPhone for me, you know, and it just stopped working, right? It doesn't work with the software anymore. And it's the same for how I feel about shoes, where it's like, I have some of these things where I'm like, I just want to wear these forever. If it breaks down and I need to get it fixed up, I want to be able to take it somewhere where somebody can breathe all this new life back into it. I think as more and more people kind of have that philosophy and are buying footwear, like we talk about on, on this podcast and like everybody on the Discord is into, and there's going to be more demand for cobbling, for people to, to fix this stuff up. And hopefully we're all going to live to be over 100. Maybe we'll get... Sounds pretty old. We we might we we might all live a very long time, right? I mean, it sometimes seems like a, a long shot, but it's possible I could be wearing these boots for another hundred years, right? And I'll I'll send them back to you four, five, six times to get fixed back up, right? And if more and more people are doing that, then you're going to need more and more cobblers. So it's a supply and demand issue, I guess. It seems that way. Most other people in the field, we're still very new. Our wait times aren't that long, but anywhere else that I know of, I mean, other local shops in Nashville, other places are weeks and months for their turnaround time. I think the demand is rising. The place that we used to work at, last I talked to the owner, Troy, there, he said they were 10 weeks out. There's some demand for it, but I always struggle with pricing. And I guess this sort of feeds into the larger general non-answer I had to your very big question. I certainly see repair as a necessity and a cultural shift in that direction as a necessity. I feel like uh, making that accessible to the most people possible would be really useful. I totally get what you're saying, right? It's like you, you, you want to be able to say to most people, hey, I can get you something that is really high quality. It's really well made. It's going to be a pair of shoes that last you for years and years that you love. It, it ages beautifully and it, you have this excellent experience of owning it and watching it grow and patina over time. But there's also a certain requirement that if you're going to try to make it commercially viable to be making these things by hand by yourself, you have to price it in a certain way where people are going to expect these premium materials, the Baker's insoles, the Wicked and Craig, Gladigo, all the bells and whistles, right? It's not really worth your time to make something that has compromises made where you're saying, well, I'm going to make something at a lower price with still very good materials, right? Because there are certainly tiers of materials below what you're using that are still perfectly acceptable, are going to be great, last a long time. It's not really worth it for you or a bard from Creosote or Brian the Bootmaker to do that. It only really makes sense to use this top tier stuff for somebody like me who nerds out about all these details, it's like, well, this is amazing. You've got this spectacular amount of really high quality materials coming together in this boot and all the handwork and all this stuff that goes into it. The flip side of that is it's not very accessible to most people. That's just something I've always kind of consider the bigger general life questions, framing what we're up to uh, under that umbrella. It's tough, man. And I, I've thought about this too, right? Because handmade and hand welted footwear is something I'm super passionate about. It's something I think can change the way people completely look at shoes. Even the jump from cemented, low-quality stuff to Goodyear welted stuff is a huge jump. And I've gotten dozens and dozens and dozens of people to make that jump and have them say, this completely changed my life, you know? I wake up in the morning and I put on these shoes and it's like, my whole perspective on my day is altered. It's like a similar jump up to the hand-welted stuff, right? The jump of it, accessibility of it is is vast. To say, say to somebody, look, I can get you in a pair of Aldens for like 600 bucks and they're going to change your life. You're going to love them. 
for another thousand dollars, you could go up to this tier that is like beyond your comprehension. Most people are going to say, I'm good with 600 bucks. Like this has already drastically improved my, my life and how I'm feeling about the shoes that I wear. It ends up being a more of a niche thing. And part of the problem with that is the supply of it. There's just not enough people making this stuff. And I don't know what the answer is. Hopefully somebody listens to this that's like significantly smarter than me and thinks of a way to do that. Yeah, I mean, it's all pretty complicated, right? And like the old shop, you're doing the sandals that you mentioned. You're probably just putting new heels on women's boots. Like, as I understand, that's a lot of what happens at Cobbler Shop. And like, God bless it, because they're coming in and saying, I know I can get these things fixed. They're already educated on that. You know, I'm not going to toss them. Somebody can fix them. That's great. You know, that next level? No, it's like simply not for everybody. There's a lack of accessibility. The fact that you're doing this and saying, no, 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 we're going to focus on people who actually really care about this and we're going to do a damn good job and we're going to have all sorts of cool stuff that we can do, you know, from the relasting on down. I think what you're doing and that decision that you made to focus on something, which was a market that was not specifically addressed previously, I think you've given yourself a hell of a shot to do it. And it's just a matter of people saying it's time. There's the complicating factor of when you get into this, you start to build a collection and all your shoes look kind of perfect for a long time. (laughs) Don't need anything. That one I don't necessarily know how to undo because it gets inside you and you're like, oh, man, that one would be great, too. And like, I'm interested. (laughs) And that's good for the industry in a different way, although not necessarily the repair industry. So we'll all dwell on that. I'm going to go give Vimes a call while we take a break, see what Vimes has to say about all this. We'll be right back with Grant from Unsung House on the ShoeCast. All right, Ticho, let's talk about some Division Road White's Boots makeups. They've got a lot. Basically the deepest white stock out there of any retailer. I've got my hands on a secret document with some upcoming DR White's releases, and I'm going to share one. But first, tell me your favorite White's makeup on the Division Road site right now. I need to know. A tough assignment that you gave me here. But I went with the M.P. Sherman 50-50 last Split Commando Soul CF Stead New Rosewood Unicorn. What drew me to this, it actually was the, the 50-50. Not really a last I was that familiar with or had, had tried on until we you know were down in Division Road earlier this fall. And I was talking to uh, Tanner from White's and he was explaining to me what the 50-50 last actually is. It is basically the back end of the 55 last they've then taken the front and just like given it a much more contemporary kind of almond toe shape but they were like yeah but it still has like all the the arch support the archies all that stuff that you get from 55 but then it's this nice kind of sleeker silhouette and i was like that's pretty genius tried them on super comfortable yeah unicorn you know the cf stead leather a scandinavian elk hide which i believe is what we call a moose here in North America. Really? Yeah. And then they just go ahead and call it unicorn. I think just to sidestep that, they're like, we're not even touching this. We're just going to call it unicorn, which I think is fair. This is a great choice. A lot of those stead wax leathers, they're fun, man, and they get moving pretty quick. Like a bunch of the new Division Road Whites, these have the the single row hand-sewn stitch down, which is pretty cool, and you don't see all that often. A little sleeker. Yeah, I agree, Ben. I have made uh, an excellent choice here. So good at this. You piqued my interest on your uh, your secret documents. What's the intel here? I can spill one thing, and it's pretty good. So this makeup actually drops very soon. Seven inch, my current personal preferred white's boot height. It's a lace to toe, 55 last, black waxed flesh, vamp encounter, natural CXL on the quarter, and I feel like a lot of Division Road's best whites the last few years have been these two-tones. It's tough to pull off, except for them. They're really good at it. Bottom, essentially, is just blacked out. Black midsole, black heel, black welt, black outsole thread. Oh. Lugged half-sole, logger heel, all brass eyelets. It's coming at you hard. Like the secret spilling. Keep your eyes open. Obviously, check out DivisionRoadInc.com for all your various highly important White's Boots needs. Follow the journey out there in Virginia and sign up for the DR Bulletin at the bottom of the site for all the releases and full editorial content because we can't just be leaking every new boot. Now back to the shoe cast. 
All right, we're back with Grant from Unsung House. We mentioned it earlier. Teacher's got a pair of your engineers showed up a couple days before we taped this, which was fantastic timing. You're doing this repair. All of it's happening at a pretty high level, and you're making stuff. You're making those Pershing-inspired boots. You're making these engineers. Pretty sick lace-to-toe that I saw maybe a few weeks back that I was like, oh, man, they're doing this too. Might have to have Grant make me some boots. So what's going on there, and how is it different? Talking to cobblers and shoemakers, each of them can't answer the questions about the other one that you always necessarily want them to. Like, I don't know that. I'm, I'm a cobbler or I'm a shoemaker, and they do something different. You're doing both. What's that like? There's so much overlap, you know. I think that there's some sort of like high-minded shoemakers' opinions about cobblers and vice versa, but I'll take it all. Shoemaking, I was curious about very early on at working at the repair shop that I started at five years ago, probably because of the Brian the Bootmaker videos. I vividly remember going on a search for an engineer boot after seeing a pair that I could own. I think the Red Wing 2268 or something, my budget was not super developed at the time, maybe. So I was aiming for Red Wing or Chippewa or something like that. And the styles were discontinued. All that to say, couldn't really find anything anywhere. So I figured I should probably just try to make some. My first pair of engineer boots, they're pretty laughable compared to the more recent iterations, but it's been a long process. I'm very jealous of some of the makers that I see that are making like pair number three and they look great. You know, it took me many, many tries, lots of trial and error to get something that was really wearable and comfortable. It's been going on for the last four years or so. I'm probably in my 50s of pairs that I've made from the, the last eight or nine months, but it's been a long road. The guy I worked for, he wasn't really interested in making boots, but he was very supportive of myself and my brother's interest in this. So he had purchased a used post bed sewing machine, which is what you need to stitch the uppers together. And he bought a couple styles of lasts from another shoe place that was going on a business in Nashville at the time. It was very supportive of us trying this out. But really, it's not been until the last eight or nine months that I feel like I'm making something worthwhile. And I've just been learning so much in the last like eight or nine months about detailed patterning and how to grade patterns. And every pair that I had made prior to opening Unsung had been a one-off where I would size a last to somebody and tape it off. Like you often see bespoke makers doing, they'll use uh, masking tape, tape one side of the last, draw the pattern on there, cut it off, and then place it out on two-dimensional paper. So I'd always done that. I was never using a consistent pattern until the last nine months or so. All right. So you brought up one of the great mysteries to me as a non-shoemaker, grading patterns. And like grading lasts is like a whole nother crazy thing. But like, how do you do that is a simple question. <laughs> it's confounding. It's simpler than you'd imagine. I don't know if I can speak authoritatively on this because I'm using Marcel Mersan's book and his ruler. And through a series of one or two measurements, there's an equation where you measure the bottoms of the lasts that you're using size to size and figure out the percentage growth or shrinkage, diminishing percentage between your lasts. And then you grade your patterns based on that. So my last size run for my PBD last, the one that, that I had custom made, is about 3%. It varies a little bit size to size. Like one will be 2.96% and the next one will be like 3.32% growth. Averaging all that out, I'm using this ruler that functions like a pantograph, I guess. That's what one of my books said. I've not, I've not heard of this <laughs> tool prior. Maybe... We should just look up a definition because I, I couldn't. Okay. No, no. Here we go. A pantograph is a mechanical linkage connected in a manner based on parallelograms so that the movement of one pen in tracing an image produces identical movements in a second pen. Oh, wow. They have a little gif here on Wikipedia and they're drawing a heart and it's actually pretty fucking sweet. Is it making the same size heart? No, completely like a heart that's like three times bigger. And I guess the way you adjust that linkage will change the size of the, the reflected image. Well, it's something like that. It's simpler. I don't have this big apparatus. It's probably a 24-inch by 12-inch clear plastic ruler setup where you draw a series of lines through your pattern piece. It's got like graphing setup where I can mark out on this line a percentage growth with a new dot. I'll, you know, it intersects with the line of my pattern piece at this point. So I'll then make a dot that is 3% larger 
and then I'll trace that concentric line and make a new pattern piece that's 3% larger overall. It's really simple. Sounds like it, yeah. I googled pentagram by mistake. Oops. That's not what that was. Dig in. When people always say like, yeah, you guys should make shoes, just get into it. Yeah, it's so, you know, whatever. And then you start talking about this stuff and I'm like, there's no chance I could ever do what you're describing right now. That sounds insanely difficult. <laughs> I Like so much of this, I've explained it to people before, is it comes from a place of vanity, but not having the budget to back it up because I wanted all of these expensive things, but spending all of my 20s not saving money, trying to play music doesn't really... <laughs> I'm balancing that out. So I'm just having to learn how to make it now. And paying somebody to grade patterns was probably an option, but we'll see how well it's turned out. I've made a series of adjustments after making some some models with the graded patterns, but it's mostly there. It's not as complex as I'm poorly explaining it and making it sound. It's actually rather simple. You have to grade each pattern piece and then you use your aesthetic eye and a little bit of logic to maybe not grade every pattern piece exactly the same way <laughs> like vamps and quarters will definitely get graded the same way but then my heel piece on the slog boot i graded it exactly at three percent growth and it needed just some slight adjustment it wasn't laying quite right in terms of construction or appearance appearance i don't know if marcel would say that though so maybe i'm not doing it correctly there's a little bit of improvisation involved you are a, a jazz musician right by background so that kind of tracks right it's informed my life in many beneficial and some negative ways as well, I suppose. Tell us about both. <laughs> <laughs> How has being a jazz musician improved your life? It really encouraged me to be a, a romantic. I think that I kind of already was naturally, but it encourages romanticism. But getting your bachelor's degree in music and then pursuing that for a decade or more, you can't buy engineer boots then. So pros and cons, I suppose. Just got to make them. All right, engineer boots. What's like the Ticho take on these things? Especially in terms of the things that we've discussed, not just they look sweet and we'll get to the walnuts. Yeah, I mean, I want, I want to hear him tell the whole story of the walnuts from foraging to uh, making these boots, but there's very few pairs that I've opened up from a box and you sent them to me in a giant sausage box, which they showed up at my house. My <laughs> wife was like, did you order 30 pounds of sausage? Which is like not out of character for me. So, you know, it was a fair question. <laughs> and I was like, I'm pretty sure I didn't. I'm pretty sure uh, these are some boots. But I opened them up and it was like, I think I did like audibly gasp at, at my first sight of them. You know, it was like they just were beautiful. And somebody uh, commented on, on Instagram that, you know, they looked like they were made out of bronze. Like they just looked like a like a work of art. And I haven't actually really done like a full wear of them. I've only had for two days and have just been kind of drooling over them and wandering around the woods, taking photos of them and but just people that I'm like running into while I'm walking around rural New Jersey with these things are like, tell me what this is, you know? And like, again, I walk around carrying boots pretty often and people just are like, don't make eye contact with that guy. Just keep walking. <laughs> like there's a crazy man in the woods with a camera and a bunch of boots. These ones, like almost 100% of people have just been like, what is happening here? Tell me the story behind these boots. Like they're hitting different, man. It's a similar thing to me where I saw my buddy Lars in Norway where I, you know, started making these boots and you're just like that's it man like this guy's got whatever it takes to do this at this level where it takes your breath away when you we see the boots like he had it you have it and it's crazy man i don't even know what to say about it beyond i can't stop looking at these things i'm getting lost just looking at them right here they're uh on my feet I can't wait to just beat them the heck up. It's something that's so beautiful, and yet I know how much thought you put into them because I got to hang out with you while you were making them, which was like such a cool experience. It's such a cool thing to do, and I really appreciate it, man. I really appreciate you taking the time to let me drink a ton of seltzers uh, watching you do that. But it's like you look at them and you just know, man, when I beat these things up, they're going to look even sicker. That's the special part of this to me is where you kind of transcend somebody just purchasing something. I'm not just a guy going on a website, buying a pair of boots. They're showing up at my house. Like, I got to know you, talk to you, watch you make the boots, which was super cool. That's obviously like kind of an extra special kind of thing. And But even just getting photos from when people were making me stuff, you get so invested in it. You're, it's so cool to me to kind of transcend just being a customer and feel like you're you know supporting something that's bigger than just buying boots or commerce, right? Now you've delivered me this work of art and now my part of this begins, right? And now I have to wear them, take care of them. But I know I could beat the absolute piss out of these things 
and send them to you and you'll fix them. And that's like, in a way, very freeing, right? Because there is this sort of thought when you have a pair of boots like this, where you're like, they're too pretty to wear. I don't want to ding them up. They look great in photographs right now. It doesn't matter because I can just wail on these things and I could go hard and send them back to you and you'll take care of them. And that like gives me a certain sense of security almost that I really appreciate as I probably take these things out on the road for uh, for their first day like this weekend. I'm stoked, man. Thank you for doing this whole process with me. It's been really cool. It was beautiful. It's hard to speak authoritatively about it. I feel like it's it's still in process. I keep telling people that. They're coming along. Do you feel like they've gotten somewhere? Certainly. I mean, I'll admit that from the second pair I ever made to where they're at now, there's so much that I've learned. But every pair, it's not exactly as I intended, especially with the, maybe I'm speaking specifically to the walnut over die, but every pair thus far gets to the end and it's not exactly what I intended at the beginning, but it turns out pretty cool. With Ticha's pairs in particular, every time I try this over dye, I'll get a new recipe, I'll make adjustments, and I'll test it on a swatch of the same leather. The Wicket and Craig Latigo have made a few pairs over dyed with that leather so far, and it'll work and it seems like it's working great. And then I'll go and do it on the pattern pieces and I'll assemble the boot and it's just not how it was on the swatch, not how I intended it to be. Your pair was very dark brown, almost black at the assembly stage. And then during the lasting and the uh, last pulling and welting stage, they kind of lost some of the even color and became a whole lot more marbled. I had to do a little bit of improvisation after I pulled the last out, but they turned out cool. I'm still learning all the different things that I can do with that over dye, but I don't know if I've really nailed it yet either. Well, let's talk about the walnuts. Where'd the idea come from? How'd you execute it? Like, what is this? There is a Clutch magazine issue that Minoru from Clinch is on the cover of the Boots and Shoes issue. This is probably 2018 or 2019, maybe. In that spread, Minoru's painting with a like a paintbrush on a piece of leather. There's a, like a mason jar, unmarked, no writing on it, full of black dye next to him. And so I, I just assumed that that was a dye that he made. He wouldn't be using some sort of factory-made dye in an unmarked mason jar, right? He probably made the jar. Could be. But I was inspired. I'm generally interested in natural products when I can reasonably use them. So I started doing some research and it turns out there's not a whole lot of information on making your own natural leather dyes. Lots of stuff about making fabric dyes from natural ingredients. So I started there, but nothing was really concentrated enough. All the fabric dyes require you to soak the fabric in your dye mixture for periods of time. And with leather, I'm going for more of an over-dye setup. I didn't want to soak the leather in that sort of mixture. So it's led me down a path of many, many failures and lots and lots of research. In one of our Instagram Live episodes, I had been doing a lot of reading on like a, a Ren Fair, almost like reenactment, medieval leather dye, fabric dye, like 1990s website. It was really wild. I had it open on my phone for a long time because I <laughs> was reading all the different recipes they had, but just trying to put it together. Why walnuts? That's one of the first things that popped up that would get me sort of a, a deep dark brown, almost black color. And that's what I was going for. I wanted something where I could find like a natural leather, undyed leather, or some sort of brown that an over dye would wear nicely into. And oak galls were another thing that I'd read about, which is there's this type of wasp that when it lands on an oak tree, there's some sort of confluence of a chemical that the wasp brings and something in the oak tree that forms this like weird cocoon around the bug. Apparently you can grind up that cocoon into a powder and that gives you like a, a black dye too, a black pigment. That's why I'm learning a lot from these Ren Faire <laughs> websites, man. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. I'm learning a lot from the recipes. Uh, I haven't found any oak galls yet. How many cocoons do you need to like dye a pair of engineer boots, do you think? That's a good question. I haven't I haven't encountered any yet. I can't imagine it's all that potent. You'd probably need several of these cocoons, but... There are several walnut trees in a backyard on the edge of our property. So there's a fridge in the basement. The freezer is full of green walnuts because you want them green. You cut the husks off and there's a chemical in the husk. It's spelled J-U-G-L-I-O-N-E, juglione, I think. And that's the active dye 
So you harness that natural ability to make something dark brown or black and find some way to help it penetrate the leather. And that's what I'm still figuring out. So how long will I be on that search before I finally give in? Who knows? I love that you're on this journey to even figure this out. I'm glad I am get to be a part of it with, with this pair of boots. And I can't wait to see how, how these things age, man. The first time I put them on and like undid the top buckles and it was like, oh yeah, like a, a little bit of it came off on my fingers while I'm like you know, t- <laughs> kind of tugging. And I'm like, yeah, like this is going to be a fun pair of boots for me. I'm going to have a good time wearing these things. <laughs> that was the necessary improvisation because a lot of it was coming off on my hands when I was uh, lasting those. There'll be adjustments to the recipe and the next version will hopefully be better. We'll see. Yeah, everybody who is uh, going out in the woods for like Thunderdome to like wear your boots, you need to add foraging for wasp cocoons to your uh, agenda. That's what we all need to be doing right now. The craft of actually putting the boots together is one thing. It's special for anybody who can figure out how to do that in the right way, that the customer's happy and the thing's going to last forever until they send it back to you. But yeah, this stuff, just like the overdye experimentation and how can you push things a little further and frankly make it into even more of this naturally created product. It's pretty cool. It's even a step beyond the more we can be driven by curiosity, like in all of these realms, leather, construction, materials, all of that. I think the more you just get deeper into it in a way where it just continues to grab a hold of you. And that's what somehow the people in Ticho's woods could sense that, right? (laughs) (laughs) Like they actually could. Because all these things are like beautiful boots put together great, the whole deal. And I don't know, maybe it was just because they were taller. I don't know. There there, there seemed to be something there. There's this sense that like, wait, 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 what's this one? This one's different. And how far different can be pushed is a pretty interesting question. But you need interested people to go and get it done. So good work being interested, I guess. You know, I've always been fascinated with like uh, the auteur movie director or something. Somebody that handles many of the jobs associated with the final product. There are so many things to learn about with boot making specifically. But I think that's a good approach. Maybe I verged on motivational speaker with Ticho in one of those Instagram live things, but like, I'm for that. Be curious. It's so fun to learn how to do something. Ticho's going to make boots. I'm just going to watch you do it, man. Uh, the level of... Your photography has already done but that, but that's so taking, much yeah, for that's the taking that... your That's taking your work and just like putting it in, in the woods or on a weird thing and taking a picture of it with my camera that does all, all the work for it. The level of vision and execution, attention to detail and skill and talent that goes into making this stuff, that's what makes me just go crazy for this stuff. That's why we do this. It's like that drive to do that and do it so well and do it in a specific way and to have a vision for it and then execute on that. Yeah, you're going to make some improvisations along the way. And, you know, that's what's going to separate you from somebody who can improvise. And it's going to make your products different than somebody else's stuff. And that's why certain people are going to love your stuff and certain people are going to want other stuff. I don't have that vision. I don't I don't have the ability to do that. And it fascinates me that some people do. I just started out as a guy that liked this. The more I meet extremely obsessive, artistic people that are expressing themselves through boot making, the more in on this whole thing I am and the more I think that everybody should be really in on this as an expression of some kind of artistic vision. I'm still just staring at these boots. I keep on uh, getting distracted by that. (laughs) The boots look good. The boots look good. So Grant, you know, in terms of learning, understanding, development in these ways, do you have your sights set on something next or you kind of still harvesting walnuts? (laughs) Not to minimize the walnut harvesting. Honestly, I didn't really expect there to be as much interest in custom-made boots. Like when we were aiming to start this shop, I figured I'd be like 80-90% repair, and then occasionally we would get an order. And I haven't opened the books on orders yet, but it seems like there's a general interest. So I don't know. We'll see how that goes. It really depends on what this next six months looks like. But I've got other patterns that I'm kind of kicking around in my head. I'd like to keep making boots. Lots of little things. Engineer boot buckles. I'd like to refine a little bit and make a few more of those parts myself. I've got a buddy here in town who is an amazing artist, a really solid friend, and he has been getting into sand casting 
jewelry and we're looking at maybe casting the actual buckle bodies right now the engineer boot buckles are i get the body of it laser cut and then i'll assemble the tongue and the roller on the engineer boot buckles but i'd really like to make the bodies myself i like that i like that that's next on the docket early in the year maybe i'm gonna wikipedia sand casting tonight it's gonna be a ride Where'd you guys come up with the name Unsung House? Oh, yeah. It's a little bit of an unusual name for a, a cobbler shop. A friend had put me on to this book called The Unknown Craftsman by, I'm definitely going to pronounce it wrong, but I think it's Suetsu Yonagi. He's like a Japanese pottery critic. I think potter and ceramicist and critic. And the book is just a collection of essays from like the 40s through the 70s about vaguely like beauty generally in craft. But there were a few sections of the book or a few different essays where he identifies artisan craft versus folk craft and really seems to favor the era where guilds were popular, where there was a, a craft guild that would make all of the shoes for a colony or, or town or something versus the singular artist, one person making the pottery in particular. There are specific details that he would... <laughs> find deplorable versus the guild craft but i was really attracted to his way of framing quality as our utmost priority much more so than fame or uh, any sort of personal glory although here i am talking about myself on a podcast with you guys uh i'm not really embodying the the philosophy that i found so appealing but that's where it comes from. I, I wanted to find something that would bypass putting myself forward. I don't think Isaac and, or I are uh, very extroverted, desiring to be the face of something kind of people. But the philosophy is appealing. Maybe we need to get back at the guilds. How do we bring guilds back? No, guilds were bad. Guilds were bad? No, guilds are great. Guilds are great. G for guild, good guild. The way that he frames it is uh, the guild was many people all working together, not making something that was altogether precious. It was for functionality. It was made for the common person. They were just churning these things out. You know, mass production, I guess, is a relative term in the medieval period, but making something to be used by the general public versus the artisan craftsperson who is making something that is only for their wealthy clients, the wealthiest of the wealthy, and it's embellished and decorated and not really for function. Yeah, it sounds a lot like what we were talking about before in terms of what concessions and cutting corners and stuff that you you would have to make on your products, right, to continue selling it as a as a handmade good, right? But if there was a, a greater connection between the needs of, of the community for what footwear do people need? to exist in like the perfect balance with society right and can you then associate the manufacturing and all these industries associated with it and have that all align so that there is balance and that people are getting the footwear that they need for the uses that they're going to use them for maybe a system like that was better able to do that than what we have right now right where it's basically impossible to to find that balance all right, here's the, maybe my misunderstanding of guilds being good or bad and my counter to it. I feel like there actually was an unstated shoemaking guild in the United States and surely in England, whatever, from kind of back to whenever, what we can call it, you know, Goodyear Welting enters the picture, turn of the century-ish until like the 50s or 60s, where you look at Nettleton, Florsheim, Nunbush, whatever. There were differences, and like it took a really keen eye to pick them out, but there was a way to make great shoes. And in terms of function and what people needed, that was it, because you kind of had one or two pairs of shoes, and that's what you wore. And the differences between those shoes were not that vast. And again, this is not as a vintage shoe collector. Like, hit me up in the DMs, call me out. There was, in terms of materials, construction, patterning, like there was a way to do it. And that way has most certainly gone away, you know, and the guild is now hype. The guild has to change course every couple months, basically, to satisfy, you know, what has been created essentially by marketing as opposed to quality. Enter the artisan who is in more ways than, you know, the author of that book probably ever could have foretold is essentially at their best. You know, there's flashy versions of this. But at their best, adopting the approach of the guild in terms of quality and precision and craftsmanship and all those things. 
So it's a pretty interesting flip in the last 50, 60 years to where the artisan is in fact necessary because the guild has gone fucking mad. <laughs> That's a good take. I like that. How do we get the guilds back? Yeah, we got to get these guilds back on track, man. We got to fix this all up. I don't know how to do that. I think it's going to be tough. <laughs> and I think, I mean, you see it, you right? You just got to start hyping quality footwear. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of what we do. But, like, without hype, without true hype. Like, I mean, we talked about this probably in a previous episode, and, you know, I have been talking about this a lot recently. Stay tuned. We're going to have this big event in New York, kind of fall 2023. And the way that I've kind of wrapped my head around it is, you know, we're not selling shoes. You can sell somebody a pair of shoes. You can explain to them why they're good. They can see your good shoes and they don't have any. And you can tell them why it's worth 300 bucks or 500 bucks. Like the real thing to sell is understanding of what it's all about and why it's important. And then you're in. Like it's it's pretty tough to get out once you're in. And if that's, you know, sustaining it financially with one or two pairs for a very extended period of time, well, guess what? That is the promise of the product. I think ultimately that is the most important thing in continuing any of this. That said, for every great maker that gets bought by somebody and they decide to make a the same price product be much cheaper for themselves. You see one or two or hopefully five people, individuals or very small workshops begin to emerge that are doing something legit and occasionally spectacular. And it's just like a scale problem at that point, right? In terms of satisfying potential demand for what's going on. I mean, we published at this point, it'll be a bit of time ago, but you know, go check out the site if you want. You know, like White's Boots, which makes boots and has made boots a very, very specific way, like their highest end line, is kind of moving off of the hand processes that define their brand for a while because there's a ton of demand and there's not enough production. And the people who used to go work at White's to, you know, hand stitch on a rolled welt are wanting to start up their own thing, but are now outside the bounds of even a handmade factory setting and like the scales all off, right? So are there going to be hundreds and hundreds of custom bootmakers? Are there going to be more people deciding that that's something that they actually want to do in a factory setting? I don't know. And like, it's all good. And the white, the, you know, the machine stitched white stuff looks absolutely fantastic and you can still get the hand sewn rolled welt, but it's, it's going to become more limited because that's the way that the forces of economics and society and taste and all that are moving. So it's pretty interesting. It's pretty interesting to see how this is going to shake out and the idea that ultimately you can get a more affordable product from a large-scale operation which allows people to get into the hobby, right, or the passion or whatever you want to call it. $1,000 plus boot is unattainable for most, where a $500 one maybe you could talk yourself into. They're all good. They're all positive from the perspective of this podcast. But yeah, where it all lands, I don't know. I'm, I'm pretty interested to see it. And we're hugely interested in anybody who's doing anything on any side of that just to keep it going. But like the interest is rising. How it can be satisfied, I think, is it's not even a puzzle because everybody's figuring it out individually. But to look at all the pieces come together, I think a lot of good things are happening on all sides. And there's no one right answer. But what you're doing, Grant, and your brother, it's fucking cool. And I hope you do open those books and that they do fill up and that you can still repair the shoes that, that I want to send you. So we'll see. We'll see. But um, good on you, man, for just getting pulled into this whole thing and caring a fuckload about it. It's huge. You know, I'm a nerd just the same. Good. Keep it up. Yeah. <laughs> Don't veer, man. Don't veer. Look, man, boots look good. Shop sounds incredible. We've talked. I do have something. I have a simple job for you that I would never be able to do myself. So, yeah, I'm like, I'm looking forward to seeing your work in all forms. Huge thanks for coming on. Before we get out, also huge thanks to Division Road for sponsoring this episode and creating a magical boot compound in Virginia. Selling a bunch of those Whites boots. Check out their schedule of events and, of course, all their boots, shoes, denim, Dean. I love Dean even though they don't make boots, and plenty more. Thank you also to every single listener who's out there cutting it up in the Stitch Down Discord. We obviously love you dearly. But yeah, man, Grant, most of all, thanks to you for coming on, just doing cool shit, sharing it with us. Hey, thanks for having me on. Appreciate your output, too. You're real beacons in the darkness. Let's light this world up, man. Look, that's it for this week. Take care of your shoes. We'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.